0: And I'd like to ask you to open your Bible up to Psalm 73. Please, if you have a Bible, if you have a device, open it up to Psalm 73. We're going to look at this, and my message is entitled, When Life Seems Unfair. When Life Seems Unfair. Listen as I read God's Word. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But... When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and seek God's face. Father, earlier today we sang the song, Lord, I need you. And we do say that again to you, O God, we need you. And as we open the Bible together and look at your inspired word. We need your Holy Spirit to come and take what's on this page and make it words of life to us. Father, use these words penned so long ago to stir our affections for Jesus, to point us in his direction, and to help us to live in such a way as to be the salt and the light that people around us need us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the honesty of the Bible. The Bible is an honest book. It contains stories of real people who had real problems, people with whom you and I can relate because we have those same problems. If you struggle with depression, for example, so did Jeremiah. If you sometimes feel inadequate, so did Timothy. If you struggle with lust, so did Samson. If you struggle with loneliness, so did David. If you struggle with pride, so did Hezekiah, king of Israel. If you struggle with fear, so did Jonah. If you struggle with doubt, so did job and if you've ever struggled with envy and who hasn't right so did the author of psalm 73 whose name was asaph a s a p h his name is up there at the top of this psalm asaph struggled with envy who was asaph well he was a priest Back in the days of King David and Solomon, he was Israel's music director. So he was the McCartney Deaner of the ancient world. He was the worship leader. He led God's people in worship. He organized choirs. He wrote music. He recruited musicians. He was, to use a modern phrase, a singer-songwriter. And he wrote a dozen of the Psalms that appear in our Bibles. Asaph was a deeply spiritual person, but he also struggled with sin. And among the sins that he struggled with was the sin of envy. What is envy? Uh, Well, envy is what you feel when you resent the advantages, the privileges, or the possessions of another person. To envy somebody means that you're dissatisfied with the gifts and the privileges that you have, and you wish you had the gifts and the privileges of someone else. An illustration. When I was a kid, I was kind of on the artsy side. Uh, My brother, older than I, was kind of on the athletic side. And he got all the praise, you know, all of the attention. And I so wanted to be strong and big and bulky like my big brother who went on to play football for high school and college. But I wasn't that good. I envied him and I sort of underestimated the gifts and the abilities that I have that God had given me. I envied my brother. I've envied people throughout my life. Perhaps you can think of someone right now of whom you're envious. Well, in Psalm 73, Asaph tells us about his envy and what it was that turned him around. So here's our outline today. Uh, We're going to look at Psalm 73 in four parts, and they all start with the letter C to make it easy to remember. We're going to start looking at Asaph's creed and then his crisis. Thirdly, his course correction. And finally, his Confidence. Uh, creed, crisis, course correction, confidence. So let's dive right into Asaph's creed. What is a creed, by the way? A creed is a set of beliefs. Often we stand and, see and recite the Apostles' Creed, right? Well, here in Psalm 73, you have in a nutshell form Asaph's creed, and it's in verse 1, where he says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a summary of Asaph's creed. He believes good stuff. He knows his theology. Asaph is reformed. He is orthodox. He knows what he is supposed to believe. After all, he is a leader of God's people. He's a student of the word of God. That's why the first word out of his mouth when he writes Psalm 73 is the word truly or surely, or certainly, or indeed, God is good to Israel. But it's one thing to know what one ought to believe, and it's quite another to actually live out of that belief, isn't it? We all know, our, we, we have our creed, we have our theology, it's up here. But so often we don't live out of what we no to be true because in Asaph's case, no sooner are the words of verse 1 out of his mouth than he has a crisis of faith. And he writes about that crisis in verses 2 through 14. So let's move from creed to crisis. In verse 2, Asaph says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He says, I had almost tripped and fallen. I lost my balance. And we want to say, Asaph, what happened? What happened to cause this crisis? And he tells us in verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See why I started off by saying the Bible is an honest book? Here is this deeply spiritual, godly man, leader of God's people, admitting that he was envious of the wicked. You can identify with Asaph, can't you? I can. Maybe you come out your front door one day and you see your next door neighbor gathered around with his friends around his brand new Tesla. And you say to yourself, oh, wow, look at that beautiful car. Wonderful, congratulations, yay, I'm so happy for you. But what are we thinking? (laughs) Why do they have that car? You know, how did they get that car? I should have that car. Or maybe you're sweating it out on the Stairmaster at the gym one day and this thin little 20-something happens to walk by and you say, why can't I look like her? Or maybe you hear about some friends of yours who just got back from their third vacation this year. Or perhaps somebody tells you about a great spiritual experience they've had. It doesn't matter. There are many examples of things of which we get envious. Envy says, I should have that car. I should have that body. I want that vacation. I deserve to have that experience, that promotion, that raise. That husband, that wife, why do they have such good kids? I should have good kids. My kid ought to be playing first base. Why does she have such an understanding mom that lets her do anything she wants to do? I should have a mom like that. The list goes on and on. I know what I'm talking about because I've struggled with envy too. As a pastor, I envy other pastors. One of the hardest experiences I have is when I go to presbytery meetings or general assembly and I hear all of the stories of bigger churches or bigger that or bigger this or the way God has favored some ministry or whatnot. And I I feel so horrible because I think I should, why not me? (laughs) Temptations to be envious of others are everywhere we go. Envy sells products. Envy causes crime. Envy creates enemies. Euripides called envy the greatest of all diseases among men. And it's listed in in, uh, Galatians 5. Paul, the apostle, lists envy in his list of the acts of the flesh. And Proverbs 14.30 Write that down. Proverbs uh, 14.30 Pardon me. Says a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Proverbs fourteen thirty. Envy rots the bones. Isn't that graphic? It's like a cancer that gets in our soul, and begins to work its evil in us rotting our bones. And in Asaph's case, it just about killed his faith. Verse 2 says that he nearly slipped off the cliff into the abyss of doubt and unbelief. Asaph believes, verse 1, God is good to Israel. But he looks around and something doesn't add up. You know, the righteous seem to be suffering while wicked and arrogant people have it easy and are prospering. The Hebrew word for prosperity in verse 3 is the Hebrew word shalom. Many of you are familiar with that word, it means peace or well being or blessedness or wholeness. Asaph is looking around and appears that people who don't even love and know God have shalom, a life of blessing. Something's wrong with this picture, God, Asaph says to himself. Unbelievers seem very happy. See verse 4, they have no pangs. That is, no struggles. You ever feel that way about non-Christians? They, they don't struggle with near the stuff I struggle with, we think. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind, verse 5. They seem healthy. Their bodies are fat and sleek, Asaph says in verses 4 and 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They seem popular. Do you envy popular people? Verse 10, people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. Uh, They seem invincible and in control. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts Through the earth. They seem successful, always at ease, he says in verse 12. They increase in riches. Earlier, I suggested that you might know someone that you're envious of. I want you to think about that person right now. Think of someone whom you envy, someone who appears to be, according to this list here, happy, healthy, popular in control, and successful. Maybe it's a neighbor of yours. Maybe it's somebody at school, someone you work with, somebody in your family. It could be a group of people, a whole group, like all married people, for instance, or all young people, or smarter people, or something like that. The point is, you're dissatisfied, like I was when I talked about my brother, you know? You're dissatisfied with whom God made you and what he's given you, the station he's assigned to you in life, the particular quirks you have. You're dissatisfied with those things that God has granted to you, and you resent that other person for who they are and what they've been given by God. Listen to me this morning. That envy is killing your joy. It is killing your joy. It is rotting your bones. Whether you know it or not, it is rotting your bones, robbing your heart of peace. It's killing your ability to love that person. You can't love and be envious of someone at the same time. You can't celebrate what God is doing in his or her life and envy him or her at the same time envy rots the bones so you see asaph's having a crisis these people that he is talking about in this psalm couldn't care less about god pride is their necklace he says in verse six they over their hearts overflow with follies verse seven they don't love god they don't give god the time of day verse 11 says that they carry on with their lives and they say how can god know you know what does god care I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. God is a million miles away. He has no relevance in my life. Is there knowledge in the Most High? He says there in verse 11. And Asaph hears all this. He sees and observes all this. And he says, It's not fair, God. You're supposed to be good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, God, I'm Israel. I've done all the right things. I've believed all the right things. Tried to honor you and obey your law. And what have I gained for it? He says in this psalm, nothing. It's all been a waste. All in vain, verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Maybe some of you didn't know the Bible is this honest. It really expresses how we sometimes feel. Now, before we pile on Asaph and accuse him of feeling sorry for himself, we need to realize that he's asking a very reasonable question here. He's asking, is God just? Is he fair? Is he good? Is he really true to his promises? And can I trust him? You know, Job asked these questions. So did the author of Ecclesiastes. So did Habakkuk. So have I. And so have many of you. How can I, how can you follow and trust a God that presents himself as God in the Bible? How can I trust and follow that God when life seems unfair? When prayers go unanswered? When my loved one does not get better? when it feels like God is a million miles away? It's a very reasonable question. And the answer to that question is in verses 16 and 17, where Asaph makes a course correction. We've seen his creed and his crisis. In these two verses, he makes a course correction, and suddenly the whole psalm shifts gears. Look at verse 16. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That is, it seemed impossible to figure out. (laughs) Uh, It was oppressive to me until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Ah, see, that's the breakthrough right there. That's the breakthrough for Asaph. He gets a new perspective on life in a fallen world. Or perhaps we should say that he recovers the perspective that he always has had, but he temporarily lost it. Just as you and I often get off track. We nearly slip when we forget what God has taught us in the Bible. It's like Asaph puts on glasses. Like, if you look at me, you notice I'm wearing glasses. If I were to take these off, this everything I've in this Bible here, everything I've written in my notes is a complete blur. <laughs> you know, it happens. <laughs> but when I put on my glasses, suddenly everything's sharp and clear. That's what Asaph has experienced as he has wrestled with God over these questions that he's had. As he has prayed and as he's been honest with the Lord, God breaks through, helps him put on the glasses of faith, and suddenly Asaph sees things correctly. How did it happen for him? He went into the sanctuary of God. That's how it happened. That is to say he went to the temple. He went to church. He got together with God's people, and he did what God's people do when they get together. They sing songs and hymns. They listen to God's word. They pray together. They encourage each other. They fellowship with each other. See, it was in the temple gathered with the family of God that Asaph regained his balance. He put on his glasses. He saw things as they really are, and his envy became faith. You know, the older I get, if I could be personal for a moment, the older that I get, the more I value what we're doing in the room right now this morning. Um, Earlier in my Christian experience, (coughs) pardon me, earlier in my Christian experience, I kind of thought it was all about me and Jesus. You know, I became a Christian in college. Pardon me, let me drink. (coughs) Getting a little choked up here. When I became a Christian in college, my life radically changed, and I loved to be alone with God. And that's still good. I'm not discrediting that, but it was all about me and Jesus, you know. And I'm certainly not discounting the value of personal devotions and things of that nature. But something special happens in church on Sunday morning, That only happens in church on Sunday morning. In fact, that's one of the bad things about COVID. People got used to not going to church and finding it a lot more convenient to hang out at home and watch church online. And now that we're back, we're supposed to be back. (laughs) This is where it's at. Now, look, I'll be honest. There have been times in my life when I've dragged myself to church on Sunday. And look, I've been a pastor. (laughs) But I did. I dragged myself. But I found that as I sang the songs, as I've prayed the prayers with the people of God and talked with friends and heard God's word and had the Lord's Supper, something changes in my heart. I get a course correction. And I get an internal perspective. I put on the glasses of faith. And suddenly those people I envy don't look so happy anymore. Because I see things as they should be seen. Asaph says, I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood the final destiny of the wicked. So his creed, his crisis, he got a course correction. Let's... Look finally at his confidence, because in the rest of the psalm, verses 18 through 28, he tells us about this renewed confidence that he got by going to the sanctuary of God. Basically, in these closing verses, Asaph preaches the gospel to himself. He does. He preaches the gospel to himself. He brings to mind three truths that he knows to be true. Three truths that lead him out of envy and into confidence and contentment in God. So I would ask you to write these down, okay? Write these down. These are three truths that I believe, if you and I will begin again, to preach these things to ourselves regularly, we will find ourselves living with that eternal perspective and overcoming some of the sins of the flesh That often rob us of our joy and rot our bones. Truth number one. Although unbelievers may prosper in this life. They will be punished in the life to come. Although unbelievers may prosper in this life. They will be punished in the life to come. That's what Asaph says in verse 18. He says, truly, truly. Lord, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You see, Asaph is saying that one day it will not matter that a person was rich or famous or beautiful. Or that they lived in a fancy home and drove a fancy Tesla and sailed in a yacht or had all that this world has to offer. Not that there's anything wrong (laughs) with any of those things, you understand. But sadly, for those people in the world who put their hope and trust in such things, on the last day, they will discover that they neglected the one thing that matters most in life, and that is having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when they discover that, it will be too late. That's truth number one. Truth number two, although believers may suffer in this life, they will be celebrated in the life to come. You see that? Although unbelievers may prosper, they'll be punished. Although believers, you and me, may suffer in this life, we will be celebrated in the life to come. And that's what he says in verse 23. This is such a precious Bible verse. Some of you have heard these closing verses of his psalm. He says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Think of that, believers. Think of that. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. You who suffer with cancer or depression or some other chronic difficulty, glory will be yours. You who have denied yourselves and carried your cross and given your money and served without reward, glory, you who have wept over your sins and weaknesses and fought your temptations and sought God in spite of your failings, glory will be yours. You who have felt so unworthy and so unwanted, who have been lonely and rejected and abandoned, and yet you still love the Lord Jesus, he will receive you into glory. And it's not because you're so good. It's not because of what you've done for him, but because of what he did for you in Jesus. Jesus came and died on the cross for you and rose again from the dead taking your sins away and replacing them with his righteousness and now God your father sings over you with joy and cannot wait to get you home you will be celebrated something like what the father of the prodigal son did when he returned home he threw a big party you'll have a big party in your honor because of Jesus in your life. Truth number one, unbelievers though they prosper will be punished. Believer truth number two, believers though they suffer will be celebrated. And finally, truth number three, that he preaches to himself in this psalm. In the meantime, how do we live? In the meantime, between now and that great day, believers in Jesus, you have the most wonderful thing in the world and that is a relationship with God that's why you need never envy a single person in the world why they should envy you (laughs) because you've got what really matters a relationship with God through Jesus Christ he says in verse 26 my flesh and my heart may fail But God is the strength of my heart and my, underline this word, portion forever. That word portion means share or inheritance or allotment. It really means enough. Enough. God is enough. Now, being a Levite, he came from the tribe of Levi, Asaph would have understood well that word portion. You see, the Levites, do you know about this? The Levites of the tribes of Israel? The Levites owned no real estate in Israel. All the other tribes received territory in the promised land. Judas, Sim, Simeon, Benjamin, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, Gad, Asher. All of those tribes, they, they received real estate, but not the tribe of Levi. They didn't receive any allotment or territory. The reason is, is that God was their portion. God was enough. He was their inheritance. And so is God your portion this morning. He is enough. He is the treasure that far exceeds and far outlasts any other. Jonathan Edwards great preacher of the colonial era here in America back in the 1700s, he preached a sermon on this very psalm one day. And in that sermon, he said something I hope you'll try to remember. He said this, He that has God has all. That's good. easy to remember, isn't it? He that has God has all. See, if you believe that, that'll cure your envy. That'll cure my pastor envy when I remember that I who have God have everything that could possibly be had. God is your portion when your marriage is an unhappy one. God is your portion when you are single. God's your portion when you lose your job or don't like your job or can't find a job. God's your portion. God is enough... This is a tough one, but it's true. God is enough when your child decides to to walk the path of unbelief. And some of you have had that experience. God is enough when you're sick and you won't be getting better. Do you believe that? New City Church, do you believe God is your portion? That he is enough. See, Asaph learned something that we need to learn. The blessed life, the life of shalom, is not achieved by what you have or what you do or what you know. It's measured by who you know. Or better yet, by who knows you. Earlier, I asked you to think of someone you envy. Do you want to kill that envy before it kills your joy and rots your bones? Sure you do. Then say with Asaph, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. God, we have to admit how similar to Asaph we are. This morning, we are aware of envy in our lives, most of us, perhaps all of us, maybe even this morning, but we thank you, God, that you're far better than anything this life might have to offer. Help us, we pray, to put on the glasses of faith and to remind ourselves constantly of The fact that one day things are going to look a lot different when unbelievers are punished and we're celebrated. God, may that not lead to pride or apathy, but may it lead to earnest living and zeal for the glory and the cause of Jesus who died to give us this confidence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.